When I was 20 years old, I did an internship at an urban church, which tended to gather together a variety of characters. And uh, I mean, we're a variety of characters too. And it was just a different set of characters. And one of the characters was a man in his mid-70s. He looked older though, you know, time wasn't kind to him. He wasn't kind to himself either. Uh, he was a, a very violent man in his early life, and, uh, and he believed that if he uh, went to Vietnam and fought, that would get the violence out of his system. He did that, but the violence stayed in his system. Uh, he subsequently uh, lost a marriage because of physical violence, beat his children, and uh, was even imprisoned for a, a brief period of time came to God late in life, and sometimes when you come to God late in life and you have uh, a lot of blood under the bridge, you take a while uh, to process uh, all of the uh, dark elements within. And, uh, and so he was always rather tempestuous, even at church. He was always either on the verge of rage or tears. Uh, and, and, uh, but you, you knew that when he was being emotive, it probably wasn't safe nor good. Well. He wanted to have a meeting with me, and I thought, as a young, uh, aspiring minister, oh, thank you, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply encouraged that uh, people wish to confide in me and, uh, and uh, see me as a representative of the Good Shepherd. I didn't think of that. I just thought, how do I get out of it? How do I cancel at the last minute? I mean, I could have developed a cold. I mean, that's hard to detect, hard to know. But I decided that would be probably not ideal, so I, I, I met with him. And, and the reason that he wanted to meet with me is, that he was unsettled by a dream that he had. He was very shaken and uh, tearful. And uh, he said, uh, in describing the dream, I, in the dream, I remembered an incident that occurred in my youth that started me down the path of violence. I was about nine years old, and there was a young man in my school who was physically disabled, and I was uh, verbally cruel to him and I wasn't stopped. And then I started to hit him when no one was looking. And I would do that every day. Uh, and, and that's what got me started uh, down the wrong road. But then in the dream, I was myself as an older man coming to my younger self. I was standing near my younger self pleading to stop. When that didn't work, I started scolding my younger self. And that didn't work, and so I raised my hand to strike my younger self. And at that point, I woke up. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you think the dream meant? And he said, I was trying to save myself. I was trying to save myself, to intervene, so that I wouldn't turn out the way I've turned out. And I get that. I mean, don't you get that? I mean, if you look back in, uh, into the 19, late 80s, into the canon of Cher, don't you wish you could turn back time <laughs> if I could find a way? Uh, don't you wish you could do that? You could go back to your younger, stupid self and say, you know, you might want to uh, get out of this car, or you might want to head home right now, or you might not want to say that to her or you might want to um, make a different set of friends, or whatever it is for you, but that you would do things differently if you could find a way. 
And this is what this man wanted, because all of us want what this man wants, which is the consolation of Israel, but your Israel, that's what you want deep down, is some semblance of uh, love, stability, camaraderie, uh, that isn't infected uh, by uh, dark power. I mean, that's what we want. And, uh, and so uh, in Luke chapter 2, we sense the same yearning because we hear a song, a rather jubilant and at the same time wistful song of an old man who is uh, fading. He's in the winter uh, season of his life, and he is looking for the consolation of Israel. He isn't just looking for his own peace. He wants peace for everybody around him. He wants everybody to have a better life. And, uh, and the good news, at least for this man, is he found it. I want to look at this passage with you. It has uh, three parts, so I'm going to divide it up uh, into uh, the following. There's Simeon and the Spirit, Simeon and the Song, and Simeon and the Sermon. Uh, Simeon and the Spirit the spirit of the life-giving, vivifying, imminent person of God is flooding this narrative. Maybe you noticed it. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now we're going to stop there. Uh, notice a few things about the Spirit, which is mentioned three times in this passage. First, the Spirit was upon Simeon. Now why is that important? Uh, because remember, this is pre-Pentecost. At Pentecost, you had a fulfillment of an ancient pledge to a uh, rather um, uh, uh, weary prophet named Joel. And uh, the promise was that one day the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh and wouldn't discriminate. It wouldn't be about men or women, old people or young people. Everybody would receive the imminent uh, power and dynamism of God in the present. Well, it's not Pentecost yet. And until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's action in Scripture is to descend upon particular people for particular tasks. So when he wants to empower somebody to do something great that is outside of their own wisdom or power, he sends the Holy Spirit uh, to rest upon that person. He's already done that in Luke's Gospel with Elizabeth and with Mary, and now he's doing that for Simeon. So the Spirit was upon Simeon. But the Spirit did something else. The Spirit revealed information to Simeon. He gave a revelation. Now, revelation, at least according to the Bible, is, a, is an unfiltered idea that's straight from God. It doesn't originate uh, from human creativity. It comes from God. And in this case, it's a very specific revelation. It's not like a horoscope. You know, I always say that if I, was, if I weren't a Christian and, I'm not, and I wasn't in ministry, I would write horoscopes because you could get away with a lot of things. I mean, you could, right? I mean, I could do it right now. You're a Gemini. I mean, that's terrific. You will have a very challenging week that will at times involve moments of happiness, and you'll, you'll face a difficult personality, but somehow you will get through this. That's genius, right? But anybody could say that, and that, that fits anybody's situation. But it's not a horoscope. It's too specific. The Lord revealed to Simeon something very targeted. He said, you will not see death until you see Christ. The specter won't come and visit you 
until you see something far grander than the specter. You're going to see the incarnate Lord of the world, and he's going to come to you. And so this is a, this is a new sort of revelation. This is a new revelation. The Old Testament prophets, right? The Old Testament prophets, what did they do? They peered through the muddy window of the future. And they saw messianic shapes and metaphors and ideas, and they wrote about them. But they never saw. Moses never saw. Isaiah never saw. Ezekiel never saw. David never saw. Old Testament great saints never were given the promise of seeing. But Simeon received it. And so this is the revelation given that he would see the Christ. And then the third thing. Simeon, it says, came in the Spirit to the temple. Now this is important because not only did the Spirit give Simeon the revelation of seeing the Messiah, he ushered Simeon to the very spot where he would actually see the Messiah. In other words, we have a Spirit that not only promises, but then in turn acts to fulfill the promise. And then inspires scripture to help us understand that when the Spirit makes a promise, he keeps the promise. And so we have the Spirit ushering Simeon to a place of uh, fulfillment. And so uh, the, um, the lesson here for us regarding the Spirit and Simeon is simply this, that the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is always tethered to the personality and accomplishments of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is obsessed, if you will, with promoting another. This is why in the book of Acts, whenever the Spirit falls upon the, the disciples or a deacon or somebody to preach and give a word, he fills their mouths with words about Jesus. This is what he does time and time and time again. This is classic New Testament theology. John 15, Jesus' uh, final discourse to the apostles, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. This is the Spirit's job, is to communicate to you uh, the grandeur of the gospel in the personality of Jesus and to uh, compel you to believe. Now, uh, this is an important point because some of us have loved ones who are averse to God because they don't understand God because God has been misrepresented uh, by, uh, uh, by a variety of things or they do understand God and they're terrified or they've, uh, they, they've had some understanding and they seem to have walked away. And, uh, and I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that, uh, that we need to give the Spirit a certain nudge, that this person might not enter into the kingdom unless we uh, say the right thing at the right moment. And so we're always trying to manufacture conversations. Have you ever considered this? Here's a Tim Keller book. You should read this, and then you'll be converted. I mean, and, and sometimes there's goodwill and good intention behind such a gesture, but at the same time, uh, uh, sometimes we're trying to uh, put the Holy Spirit out of, out of work, out of a job. Uh, we um, can pray and present, but we can't actually seal the deal. There is only one person who can uh, placard Christ in front of people in such a compelling way that they yield. And that's the Holy Spirit. So I just urge you to note that people need a spirit-led enlightenment and to pray more than you plot. Now, if a preacher says something like that that sounds clever, then it's probably true. Okay, so Simeon and the Spirit. Moving on to Simeon and the song. Simeon and the song, verse 28. Uh, Simeon took uh, Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now I want you to notice the uplifting quality and expansive quality of Simeon's song. This child is to be a gift to all people. All people. Now he mentions two groups. He says Israel, for the glory of your people Israel. Now, whatever Jesus represents in time, it is not anti-Jewish. It's not anti-Jewish. Jesus was given for the glory of Israel. Israel was uniquely chosen, not because they were impressive, and not because they had a grand moral resume, but simply because they were an object of God's grace, and they were given that grace to be the vehicle through which the Messiah would come for the whole world. They were given that distinct honor. And so Jesus Christ, uh, not Moses, not David, not Jeremiah, not even the Old Testament canon, inspired and good as it is, is the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been lifted high to dignify his own race. And so we have good news for Israel. But we also have good news for Gentiles, that this baby will be a light of revelation, that word repeated, to the Gentiles. Now, that's important because the passage began differently. Do you remember what Simeon was yearning for at the beginning? He was yearning for the consolation of Israel. But now when he's caught up in the Spirit, and when he's speaking things from the Spirit, his vision is expanded beyond Israel to the Gentiles. Now it's everybody because he's caught up in the moment, and he's caught up in God. Uh, And this is the uh, Christian idea, that Christ is not a niche market or some obscurantist interest, Uh, that Jesus has relevance for everybody in your life, relevance for you, uh, relevance for everybody here, whether or not they think he has relevance, right? Uh, That he, in his personality and in his accomplishments, he transcends time, that is, people that used to use oil lamps and people that are now obsessed with their cell phones. Um, geography, he, he's just as relevant uh, for the uh, people living in Inuit country and for the people who are in France. And it's true for people, uh, regardless of their language, for Hasidic Jews and for those who speak the indescribably glorious language of Welsh. Um, it really is, if you've ever heard it, I mean, it's just inexplicable, but it's great in its own way. And so this is the heart of Simeon's consolation, because when he took the child in his arms and when he was filled with the Spirit, he began to speak And understand that this child in his arms was not just for himself, and it wasn't just for his nation. It was for you, and it was for everybody. It was for everybody. He was for everybody. And he believed that the world was going to be all right because of this baby. And now we have Simeon's sermon. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed of the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's a shift here, you see. Not only in genre we move from poetry to prose, but also in tone we move from consolation to conflict. His sermon is darker than his song. 
while the contribution of the child is 100% uplifting, the glory of Israel, the revelation to the Gentiles, the response to that glory and that revelation is very mixed. Falling and rising, a sign that is opposed, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, that there was something about Jesus that stripped people bare from pretense. And it isn't just people that are antagonistic to Christ that will fall, that will oppose him, and that their hearts will be revealed. Even people that love him will be troubled. This is why it says in a very uh, uh, macabre parenthesis that Mary would not be immune to conflict. In fact, that conflict would come so close, it would reside within her own gut. And it says, the Greek is very sort of gross and graphic, that a sword will be jammed into your soul. The violence will strike close to home, which is probably a reference to the crucifixion. And so we have this dark sermon, which reminds us that Jesus was and is uh, a cause for great scandal, great and upsetting scandal. Um, The historical Jesus was an unsettling person. He made almost everybody uncomfortable, unless they were just so uh, uh, tired of pretending. And they knew what they needed. Otherwise, he made people terribly uncomfortable. I mean, he loved really dirty people that we would consider to be gross. He loved people that were uh, um, just moral sand piles. He loved, uh, he, you know, he loved going to tasteless dinner parties. And then he dies not as a martyr for the righteous, but as a substitute for the sordid. He doesn't even die for the right kind of people. Nevertheless, the scandal is where all of the hope of the universe resides. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom. See the two groups that were mentioned by Simeon. Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, a universal offender. But, To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so I want to simply say to us that to yield to Jesus will bring uh, to us both unforeseen goods and unforeseen pains. Uh, But they're often needful pains, because whatever pains are caused by yielding to Christ, you know that he has some good redemptive end for you. Uh, So this passage reminds me, uh, given the fact that I'm reading this now to our girls, of what uh, Mr. Beaver says in the Chronicles of Narnia regarding the great lion. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And that's the Christ that we see in the Song of Simeon. And so that spirit, song, and sermon all offered to us by Simeon. Liturgists, people that create services of worship, call Simeon's song, and you may know this, the Nunc Dimittis, which is translated as now dismiss. Simeon was able now, after seeing Christ before he saw death, to detach. He was able to experience detachment from this life as it is. He came to a place of happy resignation. And I think that this, uh, there's an implicit invitation in this passage for all of us to embrace a certain detachment and a certain attachment. Detachment. 
we really need to detach uh, from false uh, consolations. So I always picture us as um, people in the hospital, and we're all, uh, we're all sitting here in our pews, but we're in, we're in hospital gowns, and we have an, uh, an intravenous uh, bag of fluid right next to us on a large metal pole, and that bag is, uh, is um, uh, coming down, and there are cords that attach it to our arms, and we're being shot through with all of this liquid. And we each have something different written on the intravenous bag. I don't know. I don't know what's written on your uh, intravenous bag. Maybe it's political rage. Uh, maybe it's financial obsession. Maybe it's getting 100% agreement with your ideas. Uh, maybe it's important, well-heeled friends. Maybe it's conversational dominance. Maybe it's alcoholic bliss. Maybe it's media-saturated distraction. Whatever it is, the New Testament invitation, which we call repentance, is to say um, to ourselves, I think I'd be better off without the needle in my arm. Because I need something more than political serenity. I need something more than pharmaceutical serenity. I need something more than monetary serenity. I need something much more substantial that will carry me through, regardless of how the political world, the financial world, and my familial world carries me, because that's always in flux, always will be in flux. And that's why we don't just need a detachment, we need an attachment, because if you just have a detachment, you'll feel like you're starving. You need something to feed you, and to feed you well. And the nunc dimittis points us in the right direction. This is why John Calvin... And remember, most people who don't like John Calvin have never read him. I mean, this is really true, right? Uh, because in the um, Institutes, he writes about predestination. That's the only thing he's known for, right? Predestination. He write, it's about three pages in the Institutes. I'm just saying. He wrote about other things, too. You'd really like him. Anyway, um, uh, he was a little spleeny, but everybody back then was spleeny, you know? Uh, now, now, Calvin uh, was so moved by Simeon's song that he concluded the Strasbourg Presbyterian Liturgy, which was used throughout the continent, he concluded worship every Sunday with the Song of Simeon, every single Sunday, because he said he thought that if you understood Christ from Scripture and you understood Christ from the sacrament, that you could say in some sense, as Simeon did, I have seen the Lord. I've seen, and now I can depart. I can resign, because I've been given a little wisdom from God. And so the idea is that by perceiving Christ together, in worship, in uh, private prayer, in, uh, in the way we sing, in the way we love each other, uh, we can attach to a, a source of real and steady consolation. And that way, in this world, we can have a little heart peace until we wait for world peace. But you need a little heart peace. And I think we have yet to discover, as believing people, the country, the grand country, the broad country of consolation that is already present in Christ. May this untamed grace uh, seduce us. May it seduce us from all lovers less wild and also away from anything that would inhibit the freedom of the children of God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.